0: Hi, everybody. Welcome to Saturday Night at the Movies on the Lock 22 Network. My name is Steve Rubin, and as many of you know who've been following the show, we celebrate current classic and cult films and the great history of Hollywood. Um, you know, here it's always Saturday night, and Saturdays are always very special to me. We, we have a great guest tonight uh, who will be with us the whole show. His name is Mark Wolf. Say hi, Mark. Hello, Steve. Hello, everybody. Mark is, uh, is a man of many, many mantles. He's, he's a former film journalist, uh, and I'll talk about his film journalism in a moment. Uh, he started his career writing about film and getting very heavily into special effects, and then he made an award-winning educational film called The Age of Mammals, which was a sequel to Wa Dinosaurs, The Terrible Lizards, I get the impression that Mark was doing special effects uh, before many people were doing special effects. Uh, And then he moved on to being a film producer and uh, he got his spurs, as they say, on a classic film title, Slave Girls from Beyond Infinity. And I can say right now, (laughs) I wish I had that title on my resume.
1: (laughs) Well, it and makes one of us, right? <laughs> there you
0: go. And then other uh, other great titles he was involved with in producing, uh, Slumber Party Massacre. I mean, Mark, that's a big one. I mean, uh, th- that is definitely a big one. Saturday the 14th Strikes Back. And then his company created special effects for many films, including Final Destination, Batman Forever, Night at the Museum, Independence Day. Um, and he's still involved in writing. And he's just written a book, called Smoke and Mirrors, Special Effects, excuse me, Special Visual Effects, BC, Before Computers, which sounds fascinating. And, you know, Mark, uh, we could talk literally all day about this arena. I really am glad to have you on the show because, you know, I think special effects is is a huge arena and a bit of a controversial arena these days. And I'm going to jump right in and tell you that you are part of the reason that I am in the film business. Oh no, I'm so sorry. <laughs> I apologize. I used to, uh, I used to uh, in the days when riding a bicycle in Los Angeles was not hazardous, <laughs> I would hop on my, my Schwinn Stingray with the leopard, <laughs> uh, the faux leopard seat. And I'd, I'd ride up to Hollywood Boulevard from Beverlywood with about an eight mile journey and I go to Larry Edmonds' bookshop. And for those Hollywoodites, Larry Edmonds is kind of the focal point of, of, of film history appreciation in Hollywood. And I, I was buying film stills there for the first time I was in high school. And then one day I saw a copy of a magazine called Cine Fantastique. And on the cover was a story, uh, was the uh, reference to a story, uh, there were some visuals about special effects in Hollywood. And it was an article, part of a, a multi-part article that Mark had written about special effects. And um, in fact, it was called, let's see, it's called The History and Technique of Fantasy Film Animation. Now, I was in the early stages of being a film lover. I mean, I, I kind of, um, you know, I was 17 or 18. Uh, I loved fantasy films. I particularly liked the films of Ray Harryhausen and uh, I just, uh, I think that was a good little entry point for me to get excited about movie making because I literally knew nothing about movie making at that time. I loved movies. I grew up in a household where I, was, I lived across the street from a movie theater. So how could I not be a movie fan? But that article really got me started in loving film, Mark. And I bet you got a lot of plaudits for that article.
1: You know, Steve, that's, that's so gracious of you to say that and i really really appreciate it uh it's been odd all these years later i keep bumping into people who say are you the same guy who wrote those articles for senate fantastic and they kind of haunt me and i'm i'm pleased i i look back at them <clears throat> they were a, a very serious attempt by me to do something And look, I don't want to push it here and say it was really scholarly or something like that, but nobody had ever really done anything quite like it. Uh, Most of us had had grown up with famous monsters of film land and that kind of uh, coverage, and and you you never really found out how something was done. Everything had to be uh, uh, through a prism of uh, publicity material—it was half correct and half, you know, crazy ad stuff. You know, some some uh, uh, person in the marketing department who was uh, splicing together fact and fantasy, <laughs> and you know, you you never knew quite for sure how things were done. But over time, I had learned, I had discovered, and I was very very fortunate. Uh, When I was um, a teenager, I was coming to Los Angeles from the Midwest. It was like coming to heaven. I mean, it was so wonderful in L.A. And I had relatives who worked at CBS Studio Center, which was where Republic was located. And I got to hang out and I got to see how they actually made movies, what it took. To do World War One movies, and I watched them shoot *The Big Valley* and *Get Smart* and *Gunsmoke* and all kinds of uh, genre stuff, and it was eye popping. I I had a, a college level education just hanging out with these people, and of course the old timers, you know, these guys who were on. Oh, they were really old. They were like in their you know fifties, you know, maybe they were in their sixties. And they couldn't believe that somebody like me, a, a, a kid, a, a, a teenager, was even mildly interested in what they were doing. I mean, they let me hang out. Uh, the painters showed me how to paint scenic backings. The uh, DP showed me how to load a, a, an old BNC Mitchell camera. And, and I got to hang out with the prop makers. On I watched them building stuff for Gilligan's Island. I, I helped mix plaster. It was it was wild. I, I loved it. Who was and, the Who was the first special effects
0: person you were exposed to?
1: Wow. Let me think.
0: Well, while nice. you're thinking, while you're thinking, I, I can just just um, you know thinking about the early '70s and. Uh, the level of film scholarship. I think the study of motion pictures, particularly the, the technical side of motion pictures, not just the understanding of the, the stories and the plots and the genres, was mm-hmm. really in its infancy. There weren't a lot of people in town calling up classic filmmakers to do lengthy articles on the making That's of right. their movies. And I think you and I were one of the first, but uh, do, do you remember who like introduced you to special effects?
1: well I, I I'll tell you, I, I got to meet Howard Leidecker, and uh, uh, he gave me a stack of notes, Xerox notes. And that was like a graduate course in special effects. Uh, it was everything uh, how to how to make sure the music wire wouldn't kink when you were trying to suspend something and make it look like it was flying. I mean, it was meticulous. It was it was his whole career.
0: And I, rem- I remember his name because I remember that I think his company was the Lydecker Brothers, or they that's were. Right. Brothers, he, that's right. That's
1: right. His brother uh, uh, Theodore. They're they're covered extensively in the book because, listen, these guys did stuff that would be run for uh, the Academy of Motion Pictures as an example, it's, it's special effects. And nobody would believe that they were special effects shots. Well, I always
0: remember, because uh, I'm a bit of a, a military movie guy. I, you know, I've, I've studied war movies over the years and written about them. But their work on Sink the Bismarck in 1960 uh, was just extraordinary. Their, the way they animated um, miniature ship models was quite extraordinary, and I think they were literally the leaders in their class, weren't they?
1: They absolutely were, and had extraordinary experience with. Uh, during World War II, they were making these these uh, destroyers, Japanese destroyers that were 30 feet long, and putting them in water tanks, making them look very realistic one of the things they did was to make sure they shot as as often as possible under natural sunlight interesting this really helped uh with the 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 overall look it it just had a very natural feel to it well there's Um, something
0: very very animated about them as well you know it's interesting i I'll compare two movies. Obviously, for me, the benchmark is *Sink the Bismarck* because the the long shots of the Bismarck under attack, fighting the British uh, cruisers and battleships in that movie, are quite amazing. Um, then you come, let's see, five years later, and Otto Preminger makes a movie called uh, *In Harm's Way*, and yes. his his miniatures and the movie has a lot of miniature work are literally lifeless. They
1: are mm-hmm. there's yeah. Steve, we don't know who made them. It's one of the great mysteries: who on earth made those miniatures? And they're gigantic. Have you seen the uh, uh, Have you seen the picture of Otto Preminger astride one of the ships? It looks like something out of a Japanese monster movie.
0: <laughs> <laughs> and it, it, it's funny because I think the Lie spoiled me because when you see a, a, a major American warship under attack steaming at its own power it looks like it's steaming at its own power do you know if they worked on the john ford film uh they were expendable was that their work no that
1: no that was uh uh, a arnold gillespie and his crew
0: oh at mgm okay got
1: yeah and believe me they were gold standard studio they had all the money in the world relatively speaking and they could afford to do big big big-scale stuff, whereas the Leideckers, they they were at a small studio. They were at Republic, and they had a huge workload. They had a lot of films to get out the door every year, and so it's remarkable what they achieved. When you got into
0: it as a working special effects person, uh, I assume that the... um, The early people, the ones associated with uh, King Kong and a lot of the early special effects movie were winding down their career?
1: A lot of them were retired, and I was so fortunate. Uh, Darlene O'Brien, that's the widow of Willis O'Brien, introduced me to Marcel Delgado. And he worked on the original King Kong, correct? Marcel Delgado worked on the lost world with willis o'brien right And worked on kong and son of kong and joe young and he worked on a couple of the projects that obi was trying to uh, uh, get made that were unfortunately to become lost films to all intents and purposes but he had a process of wrapping the metal articulated skeletons with cotton and tying it with thread and then wrapping it with sponge and cutting the sponge and shaping rough musculature and then applying skins with scaly detail for a dinosaur or fur for a gorilla. And uh, Marcel was absolutely a a master, master craftsman. Uh, He worked on a lot of films. He made the... He made the little baby alien things for the thing. Oh, remember the right, green Sure. The, the little, the little pulsing, throbbing plant monsters. He made those. He made the uh, small-scale flying monkeys for Wizard of Oz. He made the little miniature people inside the miniature submarine for Fantastic Voyage. I mean, he 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 was a remarkable, remarkable craftsman, and he also did the hippos for Disneyland for the Jungle Ride.
0: Oh, really? Interesting.
1: Interesting. And, and they're completely convincing. And I remember the first time I saw the Jungle Land hippos, and I was I was a kid. The park hadn't been open very long, and I said, "Wow, those are pretty realistic."
0: Yeah, it's uh, it's it's almost uh, it, it, they're definitely related to the dinosaurs at Universal today. Um, yeah. yeah. What, what was your first dinosaur assignment in special effects? When did, when did you? I, I assume that you started animating uh, prehistoric
1: creatures. Was that one of the early things you did? You betcha. And I I I was very much motivated uh, as a kid to figure out how to do what I saw being on screen for, like, King Kong or uh, uh, Seventh Voyage of Sinbad or Jason and the Organized, How the heck did they do that stuff? Right. And so I, I taught myself through trial and error. And I've always uh, tried to, to, to say to people who are interested in getting into this, don't be afraid of failure. Failure is how you learn to do things. And so I, I made dinosaurs, but I also did... I did my own recreations of all of Ray Harryhausen's monsters. Oh, I'm sorry, Ray. I should have said creatures. I'm sorry. (laughs) So you (laughs) actually uh,
0: knocked them off and
1: made your own little shorts. I did. I did. And uh, uh, I I taught myself step by step how to make the creatures. And when (laughs) when I met Marcel Delgado, we were talking, and I wanted to pry out of him some of his secrets. But he wasn't going to make it easy on me. And he looked at a puppet I brought with me, a, a dinosaur. And he looked at it, and he looked at and he said, how did you do these wrinkles? How did you do that? I said, well, I took cotton, and I saturated it with liquid latex, and then I stretched it and 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 prodded it and poked it. and." he had the funniest look on his face. And what I didn't realize and what he didn't acknowledge, I had stumbled on one of his techniques. Ah. On my own as an idiot kid, <laughs> struggling, struggling to find a way to express my, myself through the through the art. And then of course, I find out later, Ray Harryhausen used that same, same process when he was building the Skeleton Warrior for 7th Voyage or or the other skeletons for Jason and the Argonauts. And that's why those puppets still survive. They're not organic foam latex. They are fibers that are completely glued together and they're like concrete. I mean, the U.S. military should make body armor for people out of this stuff. (laughs) Were you... Were you a model kit builder when you were little? You better believe it. Absolutely. And do you know why? Why? Because those model kits saved me the time of having to figure out how to make a Seaview submarine on my own or a flying sub on my own. So I could buy those kits. I could put them together. And then I could add my rubber monsters to scenes with them.
0: Hmm. It sounds like you were already thinking at a very young age how you
1: would make movies. I, I, I was, Ray Harryhausen told me I was born to be a producer. <laughs> and I really took that to heart because of course there was one Ray Harryhausen. When did, you, when, guy, did, when did you first meet him? Let's see, he and I started corresponding around Uh, 1970 or thereabouts, and I finally met him, it must have been about 74 or 75, and then when I moved to L.A. in uh, early 1978, Ray was uh, living at uh, Pacific Palisades, and uh, I I got to spend a lot of time with him, uh, Diana, and I I must tell you, you can't imagine what a thrill it was to to sit with Ray in his little garden room and go through his personal scrapbook on Earth versus the Flying Saucers, Mighty Joe Young. It came from beneath the sea. It was absolutely an extraordinary experience for me because Ray, (laughs) Ray would not let me turn the pages. He didn't want me looking too closely at everything. (laughs) And so he would flip the pages. And boy, I tell you, my eyes, I I was like, x-raying everything, boy. What can I absorb? What can I learn? And uh, one of the things that I've noticed, which so far the foundation hasn't uh, published this stuff, he had photos taken from a ladder. Down onto the entire stage setup for uh, long shots of uh, saucers smashing into buildings. You could see where every light was, where the camera was, where uh, the rigs were set up. I mean, I, I, I'd like to see that stuff get published.
0: Well, Ray Harry, you know, it's interesting. Uh, as I mentioned to you, you're. Um your article and cfq kind of got me started thinking about the world and then of course i started working for Fantastic because i i kind of and you in. did wonderful stuff wonderful oh, thank stuff. you thank you thank you and, and you know i kind of uh even though i knew about the magazine and it sub- started to subscribe about it I, I had not written for it yet and i was working on my first book which was called combat films american realism 1945 to 1970 and I was interviewing a gentleman named Ted Shurdivan, who is a screenwriter who wrote a movie called oh, sure, Hell, to, sure. *Hell to Eternity*. He, of course, we both know, wrote *Them* later on. But during the course of my interview with um, uh, Ray, uh, excuse me, with um, Ted about *Hell to Eternity*, he says, "You know, kind of reminds me what I did on *Them*." And that kind of was like a lightning burst for me. And I said, <laughs> "You worked on *Them*?" Because people who are listening today, you know, we didn't have the internet back then. We didn't no know kidding. what people. We didn't have lists of people's credits available at our fingertips with a couple of clicks. I didn't know Ted Sherteman had written them. There was no clue. So uh, that's when I wrote my first letter to Fred Clark, and he wanted me to do a retrospective article on them, and that's that was the beginning of my writing career. That's um, one of the few issues I still
1: have.
0: Well, it was it was a fun story to tell,
1: and um, now you uh, you oh, start. Wait, wait, wait! Let me on. let me just interrupt you. Let me just, you'll sure. maybe be amused by this. I spent a lot of time trying to convince Warner Brothers to let me do a remake of them with uh, uh, my uh, effects facility as uh, the base of operations. And I gave them uh, concept photos of all kinds of ant monsters. I mean, real creature type stuff. and. There were people who loved it, there were people who hated it, and eventually what happened was, um, it was a, co- a big company, it was like DreamWorks or somebody like that, cherry-picked everything at the studio that could be remade. And that was the end of, of any talk of, of Mark Wolf doing a, a, a new version of VEMP.
0: Yeah, it's kind. It's kind of the standard story that the people with the most cloud get the best projects, and of course, yes. nothing happened with it. So you and I can still exactly. talk. We can still talk about reviving that show. Uh, uh, now you make a transition. Uh, you start to uh, fulfill your destiny uh, of becoming a producer, and your first film is called Slave Girls from Beyond <laughs> Infinity, which I just love the title. Tell me how that came about. Um,
1: I I. Uh, had a friend, uh, Paul Davids, who was one of the first people through the American Film Institute.
0: And I'm going to interrupt you real quickly and say that Paul Davids was my guest last week. Are
1: you kidding me?
0: I am not kidding you.
1: Are you I, kidding me?
0: I am not kidding you. We oh did. Oh, my God. Did. I had to. I worked <laughs> I worked with Paul on his Roswell movie. I was a publicist at Showtime. and Oh, we did, my God. Are yeah. you kidding me? Isn't that a small world? I mean, we oh, did a whole night there, on, yeah. uh, on Roswell, yeah. which is coming up, uh, of course, and I'll get you the details on it. But go on, continue your story. So you, you and
1: Paul. Well, uh, and, and uh, Paul and I were trying to make a uh, what at the time would have been a very, very big budget uh, family fantasy film with uh, Mark Twain on Hawaii and having adventures with the ancient gods and goddesses of Hawaii. And uh, it it was a wonderful project. We did these very elaborate uh, uh, presentation, uh, pitch concept photos. And uh, anyway, he he had uh, contact with another guy who had been through the AFI and uh, I got introduced to him, and he said, "Oh yeah, uh, Charlie Band uh, owes me money, and <laughs> we're going to do a, a picture based on the most dangerous game." Well, of course, my my ears perked up, and I had my uh, my first uh, little effects boutique, Wizard Works, at the Corman lot. So I said to uh, this gentleman, "Hey." Um, I can get you uh, stage space. I've got uh, all kinds of props. I've got an effect shop. We can do anything that's necessary for the production, and we can do it all in house and keep the cost down. So I said, "Great, let's go." And that was that was what happened. I <laughs> I remember the the uh, uh, film was actually reviewed by Variety. And the guy was trying really hard not to talk about, wow, this is, you know, a really crazy, it's, it's, you know, it's uh, breasts and special effects, and that's about it. And he said, I just can't figure out how they had these huge sets. And he goes on and on, very complimentary (laughs) about the sets. And, of course, they're not sets. They're what we call foreground miniatures. (laughs) <laughs> or, or hanging miniatures. Now, so was, I've was, always been abused by that.
0: Was this the project that you and Paul had envisioned with Mark Twain or was this an outgrowth of that?
1: Oh no, no, no. This had nothing to do with with a legit project. This <laughs> the project with Paul was was really legit and I'll tell you it 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 should have been made, but when we when I put a rough budget together, it was going to be somewhere around $10 million. And in those days, you know, to walk in and and you know not have a boatload of credentials and say, Oh yeah, we we can make this for ten million dollars, and it was loaded with special effects.
0: Well, you know, things have not changed. It's twenty twenty two now, and you still can't go anywhere and pitch heavy, heavy budgeted projects. It's what I find amazing as a filmmaker. Is that uh, trying to judge the value of film today? Because low budget a few years ago was one or two million dollars. That was considered low budget. I would argue that today in Hollywood, low budget is ten thousand dollars. And you know, and 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 how much is that movie going to be worth when you sell it to Netflix? If they buy it for fifty, then you're in you're in the plus. And I think that all over America, uh, perhaps all over the world. Small groups of filmmakers with no money are making full-length features with everything they can pull in, and I think it's, it's a, it's I think it's a lot different than it was back in the fifties and sixties when um, I, I think you had
1: more money to play with, didn't you? Well, it, you know, I think about Roger Corman and his first film, what was it, uh, uh, Monster from the Ocean Floor? I think they made it for about ten grand. Now, of course, we've had inflation. Right? Think of it this way um, Earth versus the flying saucers. A lot of people look at it and they go, geez, what, what, what did Ray have to, to, to spend as a budget on that? That movie, the negative cost for Earth versus, was $120,000.
0: Wow. And that has legitimate actors in it.
1: Legitimate actors. And it had a very canny, clever, visionary filmmaker ray harryhausen that guy knew how to put big bang for the buck on screen he knew how to make a movie he he, he did not make a false step and i i have i've been endless the, the the longer i worked in hollywood the more impressed i was with ray and what he achieved
0: now, on your credits with your special effects company, you list movies like um, Night at the Museum. Now, Night at the Museum, to me, is one of the best family uh, fantasy comedies of the last 20 years. What, what was your involvement with that film?
1: Well, I'll tell you. Uh, the the uh, company, uh, Cinema Production Services, was founded by my partner, Mike Joyce. Mike's a brilliant, brilliant engineer, fabricator, I mean, he, he could, he could build anything. And um, he was the supervisor, he ran the shows. I, I was primarily concerned with getting our projects, the films that we wanted to make out in front of uh, production companies, executives at the studios. And it, we, we had a divisional labor. And he was uh, uh, very, very uh, capable. And I'll tell you, it, it was uh, devastating to us in, in, in 2008 when uh, we had the, the financial meltdown. And then we were hit by this uh, transition uh, to all CG all the time. And uh, we also had uh, to confront runaway production. And it was just, it was too much for us. The, uh, our facility, everybody's, everybody's facility started to shut down. You know,
0: it's interesting, and I'm sure we could do a whole show on digital versus uh, stop motion and just oh, the yeah. changing effects. I have to say that uh, here we are again in 2022. The level of digital effects magic is, of course, extraordinary. But I have to say this. Uh, I'll, I'll use a recent example. I watched the Dune feature, and I thought the Dune feature, the newest iteration of Dune, was very well produced. Obviously, they had lots of money to spend, but the movie for me personally was a little lifeless. Yes, there's some good actors working, and I, I think Timothy Chalamet is a very good actor and a good Paul Atreides. But I, I have to say, and you know, we'll talk about this in a little bit because I want to get into Seventh Voyage of Sinbad. In watching the Ray Harryhausen movies and watching some of the Jim Danforth movies and watching all the way back to obviously Willis O'Brien's great work, there was such life in those effects. There was a kind of a, a, a I, I would call it a certain level of charm in those effects. And I think that today it's, I guess it's a little bit, uh, I, I don't know if this is a fair comparison, but talking about the difference between listening to a record on an album, you know a vinyl album with re- listening to it on a digital recording. there's something about the original vinyl that gave more dimension mm-hmm. in the original special effects world. those original works had something that they don't they can't seem to replicate today at least for my money.
1: Well, I think a large part of that is because uh, Uh, When I was still uh, in L.A., I was a consultant to uh, a number of uh, trade schools that were uh, offering courses, getting people uh, trained for CG. And it it was disturbing to me because (laughs) these people had no understanding of lighting, of lenses, of uh, cameras, and... They all told me, I asked them, and they all told me, oh, yeah, we, we want to do this because it looks so simple. They weren't motivated. They didn't have the fire in the belly that, that uh, people like Jim Danforth and Ray Harryhausen and, and uh, Harry Walton and and, and and so many other, you know, but Phil Tippett, vastly talented people, Jim O'Perill, vastly talented people, we all were motivated to learn everything we could about something. We wanted to be able to sculpt, we wanted to be able to build armatures, we needed to be mold makers, we needed to be uh, uh, directors of photography, animators, you know, that that whole thing. And it it made us, I think, more well rounded as filmmakers.
0: I I think I agree. I think that, you know, for those of you who are listening, I'm not castigating the digital effects industry. I think the digital effects industry has done amazing work. I mean, obviously, you go to a film like Jurassic Park, and the sequence near the end of the movie when the velociraptors invade that kitchen. uh, It's extraordinary. And I know they use some live action uh, models in that scene, I think, as well. Isn't that true? Yes, they did. Yeah, Um, but
1: yeah. But, you know, you you, my book, Smoke and Mirrors, I had to pick a cutoff point where I wasn't going to keep talking about movies and end up with a, a book as large as, a, as an old L.A. phone directory, right? Right, of course. And so I, I selected uh, 1993 and Jurassic Park because that was really the beginning of a transition away from the handcrafted, hands-on kinds of filmmaking that that I did and and that I wanted to uh, preserve. Uh, My book is a legacy project. I wanted to leave something behind when I'm gone that is a record of how the pioneers invented processes and methods and techniques and who they were. A lot of these people, their names are already forgotten to a large extent. And I want the the researchers, the fans, the filmmakers in the future to have a record. And they can refer to this and say, oh, yeah, look, oh, wow, they did use things like mashed potatoes to simulate ice cream in movies. Who would have ever thought to do that? Well, <laughs>
0: Here it is. Or in the the case of Projects Unlimited, uh, creating the lava in the time machine, I guess it was oatmeal.
1: That's right.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Excuse me. I would have liked to have been a fly on the wall when Dino De Laurentiis was was, uh, prepping King Kong, his King Kong, and they decided to use the man in the suit approach. Do you have any insight into what happened there? Because obviously that was a disaster
1: you know i i I sort of feel like anything I would say might come off as sour grapes or something because uh I absolutely loathe that movie uh, <laughs> I, I in fact i I despise virtually every rip off of, i i I think they're all abominable and and i I just can't waste my time with them my I've seen them I've seen them once. <laughs> And that was more than enough. Uh, I, I've been told that when the uh, mechanics for the large prop gorilla they built oh, God. showed up, and and I I'm I'm sort of vague on it. I I don't remember if the stuff was shipped here in L.A. or if it was uh, in New York, but be that as it may, <laughs> they're uncrating everything, and it arrived with two right arms. (laughs) (laughs) And and, you know, that just sort of sums things up to me. And and of course, you know, the fight with the snake, uh, I understand I've been told uh, by several people that the fight with the snake was never ever originally intended to be filmed. I don't know.
0: You know, you look (laughs) back on Willis O'Brien's work and now we're talking 90 years ago. I mean, it's uh, it's insane. Yeah. Uh, you know the, the 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 it's just something you know it's not just willis o'brien's work alone it's the the art directors mm-hmm. and the 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 cameramen to create uh, a very atmospheric skull island where everything looks dangerous and dark and the creatures you know his tyrannosaurus rex is a very impressive one for 1933
1: I think it's impressive now. Yeah, I mean, no, honestly, I, I, I watch it. It's 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 got energy. It pays attention. Right. It 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 hints at life. This is something that the CG animation doesn't necessarily uh, uh, capture as well.
0: Well, you know, it's interesting. I mean, uh, I, I saw the Peter Jackson King Kong. I mean, it's you yeah. know. Peter, Peter Jackson is known for excess. I think that uh, he needs a certainly needs somebody cutting behind him because he has a tendency to make shorter films very long. And I I will say this <laughs> I will say this that he he loved the King Kong story and unlike Dino De Laurentiis who decided to go his own way, I think that uh, I think Jackson did a very nice job. His his battle between Kong and the three T Rexes to me is is quite a quite an engineering feat in CG. But again, I'll go back to uh, the original stop motion filmmakers and and I would like to spend a little time now as we close in toward the end of this discussion. I think I would love to get a little bit of uh, discussion with you on my favorite of Harryhausen's, which is the first one I ever saw uh, because I probably saw Earth versus the Flying Saucer and it came from beneath the, sea, beneath the Sea later on on television. But I saw Seventh Voyage of Sinbad in the movie theater in 1958. And uh, I loved it. I loved it.
1: Well, uh, you and I are on the same page. And uh, I I have something to say to you. From the land beyond, beyond, from the world past hope and fear, I I bid bid you now appear.
0: (laughs) (laughs) You know, it's funny because um, I... uh, I did a retrospective for uh, Fred uh, later on that he never published, by the way. I guess I don't know. I think he thought it was a minor film that didn't deserve the Steve Rubin treatment. But I did a retrospective on the Invisible Boy. Oh, and yeah. I, I drove. I drove up to Fresno and I interviewed Richard Ear, who had become a school teacher. No and, kidding. Yeah, and. Uh, uh, you know, for those of you listening, Richard Ear played the genie in Seventh Voyage of Sinbad. He played Barani. And he was in a number of films. He was a very popular young actor at that time. He had been in William Wyler's Friendly Persuasion. He played Gary Cooper's son. Uh, he was obviously in The Invisible Boy. And he t- he told me, because he was gradually getting, he, he was working his way out of the business. It just didn't have the allure of him, for him Anymore, So he was out of the business pretty much by the early 1960s, but he said that when he did 7th Voyage of Sinbad, uh, he was he was really uh, uh, kind of uh, insulted by his friends because they thought he looked kind of goony with his little turban. (laughs) 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 Poor guy. (laughs) Poor guy. He got a lot of uh, grief for playing this little turban genie, who I've always felt is the low budget genie of cinema, you know. Uh, yeah, you know yeah. they're, they're trying to get across the river of lava and uh and brani throws him a rope
1: <laughs> right right good old ray you know they they had to come up with a solution oh, all right
0: and then of course ear told me that he did not go to spain you know he when when uh Barani does that cartwheel at the beginning to create the barrier between sinbad and the cyclops he starts the 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 cartwheel but it's finished by a extra in Spain. So that was kind of interesting. But uh, uh, it, it's one of my favorite films for many reasons. I mean, the 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 work that Harryhausen did was so inspired and uh to this yeah. day I hear the sound of those cyclopses and yeah. they're scary.
1: Fabulous. What a what a wonderful design. And you know, a lot of people uh seem to think that uh, Ray tore down a, a large mirror puppet from 20 million to use as the basis for the Cyclops. And that's actually not true. Uh, the, the Cyclops, the, the, the main Cyclops, the primary Cyclops, was, uh, I guess, about 16 inches tall and was fabricated entirely new puppet, entirely new armature. And Ray built it. Uh, larger than his usual models because he wanted to be able to use the head, hand, and uh, leg and hoof uh, in uh, close angles, and it was uh, a, a good solution. I mean, uh, Ray also did tear down a a 12-inch emir to make the Cyclops that fights the dragon. Oh, okay, right. And there was also a six-inch emir that was torn down to make the small cyclops. Remember when the blind cyclops is walking on the cliff pursuing Sinbad? Right. And then it falls off the cliff? That was a six-inch tall puppet. Ah. Beautifully animated, just, you know... And those
0: of you who are listening, we're discussing the Seventh Voyage of Sinbad, which uh, was released in 1958 by Columbia. I think Ray was also aided enormously by the sound department. Oh, I agree. Absolutely. The oh, sound I, of that Cyclops, I can still hear it today. And it's, uh, it's a very unique sound.
1: Oh, Steve, when you say sound, of course, yes, we can, we can talk about the creature effects. But how about that soundtrack? bernard
0: herman wow oh my goodness my goodness from the very get-go i you know herman and Harryhausen, and the two h's were were, uh, were very much welded together in so many classics i mean you've got jason and the argonauts you've got three worlds of gulliver you've got uh, mysterious island you're, you're gonna uh, give
1: me palpitations here you know this is <laughs> favorite Saturday afternoon movies right in a row that Thank play you.
0: today just as well as they play today and I, I would say again I use the word constantly it's become kind of a cliche for me but there was a charm about those movies uh the scripts the performances you know some people will say that there's you know there the performances in Seventh Voyage of Sinbad were nothing but great great shakes and that uh that um Uh, who's the lead in Seventh Voyage of Sinbad? Um,
1: Erwin Matthews.
0: Erwin Matthews, not exactly Lawrence Olivier when it came to acting, but he was
1: perfect for me. My God, he's so earnest. And, And I'll tell you, that guy had a flair for looking and acting like, even though there was nothing there, he was seeing it. And that made Ray's job so much easier to add the skeleton warrior or whatever. The, the, their, their sword
0: right. fight is to me, one of the classic moments in special effects. I mean, obviously uh, Ray you know, uh, made it a much bigger scene in Jason with multiple skeletons, but the whole concept of them filming that is is quite a experience.
1: Can you talk a little bit about the filming of that sequence? I can. Uh, there was a uh, Italian fencing master, and I, I, I'm always uh, sort of afraid about uh, pronouncing his name. Uh, it was, uh, Enzo Massimi Greco. And pardon me if I got that wrong, but uh, he had worked with uh, uh, the director, uh, Nathan Duran, on uh, Uh, an Italian, like, Three Musketeers series or something like that, so they had an existing relationship, and he came in, he choreographed the scenes, he worked with Ray, they had a methodology with uh, beats, so that Enzo would rehearse with Kerwin Matthews, and Ray would film the take with with black and white film. And he would use that back in his studio as a reference to help guide him in getting the right kinds of uh, flow and interaction. And uh, Enzo, with Ray's cooperation and uh, support, was able to make sure that the dynamics played as well as possible for the camera. And Ray said, you know what would really look good? Here's this table. There is glass beakers and and, uh, weird colored magical fluids in them. Let's rig that up so it explodes. And then I can time in the action that the skeleton has swung its sword, destroyed that stuff, and then continues to spin into the shot. It's amazing.
0: It's amazing. so well thought out. I I would put that up there. You know, one of the great fantasy moments in in filmmaking is Gene Kelly dancing with Jerry the mouse and, you know, Anchors Away, which of course is a, a classic. Uh, but the the sword yeah. fight in, in Seventh Voyage to me is is a great there's all different types of special effects in Seventh Voyage uh, uh, there uh, there there must have been some large props done because when Parissa yes. uh, is is uh, is miniaturized and she's on that pillow they obviously had to create a
1: giant pillow correct you know I'm so glad you mentioned that because it 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 was the movie I think helped bring Spanish craftsmen to the forefront. They had been getting exposed to uh, foreign companies coming in, but they they weren't really hitting their stride. But these guys were really talented. They were eager to learn. They were fine artists. And so uh, uh, people like uh, Francisco Prosper, with whom Ray would work many times, uh, brought his crew, they made the giant rock egg, they made the cage for the men uh, uh, that the Cyclops uses, they made the Cyclops giant club. Sure. Uh, they made all that stuff. And the process of working with Charlie Schneer got the Spanish to understand. What, what a producer without much money is going to expect from them. And it's a lot different than working with people who have a lot of money. When uh, Wilkie Cooper discovered that they had no lights, no lights available, they found out that next to the uh, shooting stages they were using, there was a big production. I, I think it was Stanley Kramer's Pride and Prejudice. And Wilkie Cooper and and some of his assistants would go in at night, and they would borrow the lights. They would make sure they made notations: okay, it, it was at this height, it was at this angle, you know. And they would roll everything back in the morning before before the crew would arrive. But they would be able to use those lights to shoot all night and, and, then, and the, the 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 Spanish craftsmen learned they evolved and, and they were so gifted that that uh, Ray really helped them uh, up
0: their games no kidding you know, those of you who are listening you know as a as a 7-year-old watching this in a movie theater in 58 it, it, there was just something about the saturday afternoon uh, adventure movie that just soared. And I remember vividly sitting in that theater, watching every moment of of that. And I was enraptured with this adventure because that's another thing that, you know, it was a very good script. It it, it certainly got you excited. Uh, It has a very good opening. I thought it had what they call a teaser where obviously you see the first encounter with the Cyclops. Mm -hmm. And uh, which interestingly enough, I've actually seen um, Broadcasts of the movie where they cut that out, and the movie actually oh, you know, God. Yeah, begins in Baghdad. And uh,
1: Unbelievable. Just some,
0: and and you know, for the money they were spending, they weren't spending a lot of money. They got very good actors like Kerwin Matthews, and people like Torin Thatcher, who played Sakura, the you know the magician,
1: what, uh, the sorcerer. Oh, what a terrific talent! Oh my God, exactly, uh, I, exactly. I love Torin Thatcher. I I met him. Oh really. I, I was very fortunate, uh, Ray and Diana threw a dinner party at their place in Pacific Palisades. And uh, uh, Jerry Duran was there and Torrin Thatcher and Ray Bradbury, you know, sort of the usual suspects. And Torrin Thatcher was so gracious and fun and uh, unlike a lot of actors who are so full of themselves, right? He, he had none of that. He 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 was just a joy to be around, and the respect that he had for Ray, wow. No kidding.
0: Oh yeah, I mean you know it's interesting. This so film is such a collaborative art, and I think that uh, Ray had Ray benefited by being surrounded by not only professionals, but inspired professionals. And I think that his his work, uh, obviously he got a much bigger reputation later and people flocked to his films. Uh, I can't say enough about him. Well, you know, Mark, this has been terrific. And, you know, I I have a feeling I'm gonna have you on the show again and we're gonna talk about others of our favorites because (laughs) we both have that, you know, we may be older now, but I think really we're still, we're still nine years old watching those pictures on the on the big screen at heart. I believe that.
1: <laughs> I do too, Steve. I absolutely. <laughs> I have really enjoyed this. It's been a lot of fun talking with you, and uh, I, I I hope I haven't been too boring. And uh, no, no, are you kidding? You are a
0: window into a very unique field. And uh, for those of you, the name of his book is called Smoke and Mirrors: Special Effects, Special Visual Effects, BC. And that stands for before computers.
1: It's at Amazon.
0: On Amazon. And And if uh, people want to reach out to you, how do they reach
1: you? Well, I've I've got a YouTube channel. And uh, they can look me up there and uh, leave me a comment or something and I can try and get back to them. That's Mark Wolf, everyone spelled like the wolf in sheep's clothing that's right Uh, or the the wolf in the fold or something right there you go
0: there you go and again thanks mark for all your good work over the years and more to come and and And, you thank you you're welcome and uh uh this is steve rubin with saturday night at the movies everyone have a good evening and take care because you know every day is saturday in this world